God speaks in his word. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. And together, thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you were here with us last week, we're uh, in the book of Job. If you weren't here last week, uh, just to get, I want to give you a little bit of an idea of where we've been and where we're going. Uh, Job is a book about a few different things. Um, Job is a book about why suffering happens. Why, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a question that we hear a lot. Job tells us some of the ways that we shouldn't answer that question. It tells us the, the answer to that question is not karma. It's not those who do good get good and those who do bad get bad. It also, though, doesn't really give us a positive answer to the question. Other than to say this, God is good and he's in control. So there's not like a logical explanation that's given for suffering. Hey, this happened so that this would happen. Or this, would, this happened so that you would learn this lesson. There's none of that in the book. Job tells us why suffering happens. Tells us why it doesn't. It's not karma. In terms of why it does, it's because God is good and he's in control and that's all we get. Job's also about how to respond to suffering. Last week in Job 1 and 2, we heard that Job has lost everything. You often hear, I call them preachers very loosely, uh, people on TV today talking about if you love God, you'll get health and wealth. Well, Job loves God. He's blameless. He's the most righteous man on earth, the wisest man on earth. And in Job 1 and 2, he has all of his wealth and his health taken away. In the first part of Job's suffering, he loses all of his wealth, all of his possessions. The Bible says that he's the wisest man in the East, that he's blameless. He has all the possessions that you can imagine a king would have. He's got seven sons. He has many daughters. He's got many servants, many cattle, many sheep. All of that is taken away from him. Everything perishes. Everything dies. 
In the second part of Job's trials in Job 1 and 2, he has his health taken away. Last week we heard that Job is covered in boils and sores and that he scraped them off with pieces of pottery. God has allowed the accuser, Satan, to take everything away from Job. Faithfulness to God is no guarantee of earthly reward. But how, sh- how should we respond to that? That's what Job's about in part. Job's also about, though, ultimately pointing us to the one who suffers perfectly and for our sake, who is Jesus. And so this morning, I want us to see three things out of this text. This is mostly about how to respond to suffering, this, this chapter. It's about that Second point I just told you Job is about. I want you to see three things. I want you to see two different ways, really three different ways of of how people respond in this text. Job's how Job's community responds and then how Job himself responds. But I also want you to see how it points us to Jesus. Now I need to warn you, this is a very heavy text. And this is going to be mostly a heavy sermon. And I don't warn you about that so you'll close your heart off, but actually so that you'll open your heart up. I hope that this morning, if you have come in with pain, sorrow, grief, loss, maybe even pain, sorrow, grief, loss, that you've buried down deep, God actually wants to meet you in that today. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this book. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. God, we pray that your spirit would move this morning, that we'd see Jesus in this text, and that you'd meet us here by your spirit, through your son. Amen. First thing I want you to see out of this text is that Job's community shows us two different responses to suffering. Job's community shows us two different responses to suffering. We didn't read verse 9, we did last week, Uh, we heard it last week, but verse 9 gives us one way, and that's through Job's wife. Job's wife says in verse 9, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. There's all kinds of ways to think about what Job's wife says, many of them negative, but it's possible that Job's wife is actually trying to show mercy on Job here. at least in her own mind. You've lost everything, Job. Your kids, your possessions, your servants, they're all dead. We're talking about a man whose house a few days ago was filled with laughter and feasting. whose land was filled with cattle and sheep and other kinds of animals, whose crops were plentiful and whose servants were dutiful, and now all of that is dead. Not by any fault of Job, but simply because the Lord allowed Satan to test Job. None of us have experienced, I don't think, 
Many of us have not experienced that kind of loss. And can you hear maybe the merciful motivation of Job's wife? Your life is over, Job. Just get it over with. Curse God and die. Job's response, though, is to call her, well, to tell her that she's speaking like one of the foolish women. This reminds us of the two women in Proverbs, Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom, the foolish woman and the wise woman. The wise woman leads men into obedience to God, following God's law, a meal of life, whereas Lady, Lady Folly, the foolish woman, calls out in the streets to try to entice men into her house where the meal that she serves them is just dust and ashes. It's, it's death. Job's wife, her response to Job's suffering is to try and serve him a meal of death. It reminds us of other stories in the Bible like Eve where Eve tempts Adam to eat the fruit or like Sarai where she says Abram sleep with my servant Hagar things that seem in the moment to be wise but are actually foolish and that bring death maybe we resonate with Job's wife hey this is so terrible that I might as well be dead. Let's go ahead and get it over with. And I don't want to move past that quickly. Some of you may have felt that way. Some of you may feel that way. That you've suffered so much. You've lost so much. Your grief is so unbearable. that death would be a mercy. Job's response, though, is not to follow his wife's advice, but instead to say, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job has good theology. But that'll only get him so far that we'll, we'll see that in a minute. The second response that we see here, Job's community gives us two different responses. The second response that we see is his friends who grieve with him, but who give him no answer. In verse 11, Job's three, three, three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him. They came each from his own place, they made an appointment together to come show him sympathy and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they didn't even recognize him. What did they do? They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Job's friends here actually, this is the only point in the book where they do something good. Um, they show us what it means to weep with those who weep. 
That's Paul's command in Romans 12. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. Job's friends come to him. They sit in the ash heap with him. They don't try to give logical explanations for what happened. They've traveled a great distance. And in fact, this imagery of them throwing dust up to heaven, of sitting in the ashes with Job, and even of Job himself, is that these friends have entered into Job's situation with him. And that situation is one of death. Job might as well be a dead man at this point. Sitting in dust and ashes, covering himself with sackcloth, having his body scraped with pottery, all of his possessions are gone. He's, he looks like a dead man. He looks like somebody who is in the grave. In the Old Testament, the grave is often depicted as somewhere shadowy, dusty. And there's all this dust flying around. They're sitting in dust. They're buried. They're in a grave with Job. They've entered into his pain and his situation. Their first response is simply to be present with Job. And that's commendable. How often when something bad happens to somebody else, or even to ourselves, are we tempted to try to give a, a theological rationale? Hey, I know you're hurting, but remember, God works together for good, all things for those who love him. I mean, that's true. Amen, right? But how often are we quick? The point is, how often are we so quick to spit out a Bible verse to stop someone from grieving? I see your pain, I see your sorrow, but hey, don't feel it, think it. Think it through. How often are we so quick when a tragedy strikes to place blame? This kid is lying dead in the street, but he probably deserved it because he did this, this, and this in his life. This is what we try to do with grief often is we try to explain it away. You shouldn't be sad because God is good and in control. You shouldn't be sad because this person deserved what they got. You shouldn't be sad because shall we not receive good from God and also receive evil. But Job's friends, instead of doing that, they sit with him. They weep with him. They enter into his pain and his situation and feel it with him. One commentator says this, when somebody is grieving, just being with them, our presence is felt. It's enough for us to be there, to hold their hand, to dab their tears, to join them in their weeping. These friends right now, they're commendable, but in the end, they actually end up mocking and scorning Job. And really, Job's wife and his friends, neither of them give a complete response to Job's suffering. If you notice, Job's wife has something to say, but her actions don't communicate that she's grieving with Job. Now, probably, of course, she is, but in the, the, the writer of Job wants to emphasize words instead of actions with his wife, and they're bad words, too. And he, the writer emphasizes 
actions but no words with Job's friends. Yes, they're there. Yes, they're present, but they have no explanation. They have nothing to say. And when they do start to speak in chapter 4, everything they say is dead wrong. Neither of these, these responses are sufficient. They don't, they don't get at bringing Job to a place where he understands what has happened to him and who he is in light of his God. And so the second thing that we want to see is Job's response. He finally opens his mouth in chapter 3, verse 1. Job's good theology doesn't stop him from grieving. Job's good theology doesn't stop him from grieving. We've seen in chapter 2, verse 10, that he recognizes God's in control. He understands that uh, God can give good and he can allow evil to happen. He has good theology. But that doesn't turn Job into a stoic. That doesn't turn Job into somebody who feels like he can never feel anything because I already know the right answer. And in chapter 3, this is a gut-wrenching chapter. One person says it's the most depressing chapter in the Bible. I think I agree. He pours his heart out. Listen to what he says again. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Down in verse 7, behold, let that night be barren, let no joyful cry enter it. Verse 9, let the stars of its dawn be dark, let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Job feels... So low. Job feels so much sorrow. He doesn't just want to die. He wishes that he'd never been born at all. Some of you may not have experienced this kind of suffering or sorrow, but many of you have. And I just, I want us to all ask ourselves together. Have we ever felt so low, so sad, so sorrowful that not only do we want to die, but we wish we'd never existed? Maybe it's something that's happened to you. Maybe it's watching something happen to somebody that you love. Maybe it's seeing somebody follow their own choices into death and you can't stop them. Job feels so much grief 
that not only does he want his own existence erased, he wants the whole creation to be undone. Let, dark, let light turn to darkness, right? That's Genesis 1, day 1. God, just go back in time and don't do the whole thing. I, I, I want to encourage you that if you have felt sorrow, Job is voicing the cries that maybe you won't even let yourselves speak. God, why? Why did you even create me? In fact, why did you create anything if this was going to happen to this person or to me? In this chapter to Job, death, to quote one guy, is better than life. Recently, uh, there's a show, and I'm not going to even mention the name because I don't want to do the spoiler alert thing, but there's a show, and the most recent episode is dealing with grief and loss. And the main character says, uh, they're talking about losing someone close to them. Suddenly, unexpectedly, in a horrible way. And they say, the only thing that would bring me comfort is seeing him again. Sorry, I'm so tired. It's, it's just like this wave washing over me again and again. It knocks me down, and when I try to stand up, it just comes for me again, and it's just going to drown me. This is how the psalmist in Psalm 88 describes his situation as well. Like waves crashing down on him that will not stop and will not let him go up and instead push him down into the abyss of death. Six times Job says, why? Verse 11 why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Verse 12, why did the knees receive me? Verse 12 again, why the breasts that I should nurse? Verse 16, why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Verse 20, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden from whom God has hedged in? Why? Job's gut-wrenching cry, why, God, why did you take all of my possessions? Why, God, why did you take all of my servants? Why, why, God, why did you take all of my sons and my daughters? It's not just a question for Job anymore in verses 20 and following. It's a question for everybody. Not just, why did you do this to me, God? Why wasn't I a stillborn child? But why is light given to anyone who is in misery? Why is light given to any man whose way is hidden? Why? 
This is the question of the rest of the book. Why God? Ultimately, Job doesn't have an answer. All he can do is not sin with his lips. Job doesn't have an answer here. He stops speaking after chapter 3 for a while. Job's wife certainly doesn't have the right answer. She's already proven that. And in chapter 4 and following, it will be apparent that Job's friends don't have an answer for Job's questions. It's not until God finally speaks in chapter 38 that we begin to see an answer in this book. And the answer that we see in Job is that what we need isn't a curse. What we need isn't a concept, some kind of logical argument for why suffering happens. What we need isn't human community who's with us but has nothing real to say. What we actually need in the midst of suffering is the power and the presence of God. And that's it. And so the third and final thing that I want you to see out of this text is that Job's despair and ours is turned to joy by Jesus. Job's despair and ours is turned to joy by Jesus. Listen, what I'm about to say, everything that I'm about to say is not intended to make you feel like you can't be sad. Job is not rebuked in chapter 3 for, being, for, for grieving, for being sorrowful, for weeping. What I'm about to say is not intended to, to make you feel like I can't feel sorrow over this anymore or I can't grieve over this person anymore. But what Job intends to show us is that the answer to your suffering and mine is not in a concept or a community, it's in a person. It's in the person of God in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, who is with us by the power of his Spirit. Think about this. In Job, Job's wife speaks foolishly. Job's friends speak foolishly. And yet, in the incarnation of the Son of God, when God the Son takes on human flesh, what does Paul call him? He calls Jesus the power and the wisdom of God. If you want to know wisdom, which is what Job is searching for, if you want to know wisdom, wisdom is known in the person of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 1, when Paul is talking about Jesus as the wisdom of God, what's he talking about? He's talking about how foolish it looks to the world for Jesus to die on a cross and then to claim, oh, he's risen from the dead three days later. That seems foolish to the world, but it's wisdom in the eyes of God. This is why Job is so important. What looks like folly, what looks like The fact that God doesn't even care. What looks like maybe wisdom, on the other hand, with Job's wife. Curse God and die. All of that is reversed in God's economy. It's actually wisdom for the God of the universe to become a frail, finite human being. Live the life that we can't, die the death that we deserve, and rise from the dead. Think about this. Job 
despairs in the midst of his friends. Three friends who are supposed to be wise, but end up being foolish. Job is the loneliest man on earth in Job chapter 2 and 3. But Job's despair in the midst of his friends is met with Jesus giving us life as he's abandoned by his friends. Remember, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus went to a garden to pray. To pray that God would give him the strength to go and do what he was about to do, which was to be arrested, tried, beaten, and crucified. And he says to Peter, James, and John, come and pray with me. What do they do? They don't even sit with him. Like Job's friends do. They just fall asleep. Jesus, you you feel lonely and suffering? Do you feel like nobody else can understand? Nobody else gets it? Nobody has a word for you? Jesus has been the loneliest man on the planet. Not just to do it, but for our sakes. He's abandoned by his friends in the garden. He's abandoned by his friends while he's being tried. Peter denies him three times, and then he's alone on the cross where he's forsaken for our sakes. Job's loneliness and despair are met with Jesus taking on loneliness and despair for us. Ultimately, Job's suffering needs God's presence. And Jesus is God's presence with us, suffering on our behalf. The the point of this is not to say, don't be sad. The point of this is not to say, don't feel pain. The point of this is not to say, don't grieve. The point of this is to say, Jesus has entered into all of your pain and your sorrow and your grief. Taking it on himself. God knows. God actually has experienced how you feel in the person and work of Jesus. He's not a high priest who doesn't understand our weaknesses. It's a man of sorrows. Ultimately, Job's, Job asked why six times. Why? Why? Is this, have you found yourself in this place? Why, God? Why, why is this happening to me? Why did this happen to this other person? Why, God? Job asking that question six times begs, begs for a seventh. In the Bible, seven is the number of completion. If you got six of something, you need one more. Job's six whys are begging for a seventh why and one that will bring an answer. And that is what we find Jesus saying on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus answers his own question when he says, it is finished. That's why. Jesus suffers so that we might become sons and daughters of God. That's the answer to the why of suffering in the person who is the one who suffers for us. 
See, because Job's lament, Job's lament and ours, that we don't just wish that we had never been born, we wish that God would just uncreate everything. That my, my pain is so much, my grief is so unbearable, that I wish that God would go back and just not create the world at all. The answer to that is in God taking on that suffering on our behalf. Because when Jesus goes to the cross, when Jesus goes to the cross, darkness falls on the land. Light, the light of the world being put to death, actually does bring darkness to the earth. And yet, as this great uncreation is happening in the crucifixion, what Jesus is doing is actually renewing all of creation in himself. Because on the cross, what Jesus does is he disarms all of the rulers and principalities and powers of the world and puts them to shame. What Jesus does when he descends into the grave, into death itself, as he looks death in the face, into, he looks Satan in the face, the ruler of that realm, and he says, you have no power anymore. I am king. And when he rises from the dead and ascends into heaven, he puts all things under his feet. Because now, at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, death, hell, the grave, Satan himself, all bow to Jesus. What Jesus has done is reversed the curse that Job is experiencing and that you and I experience so that now that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, Job's accuser is thrown down and so is ours. That's the good news of Job. That's the good news of Jesus. None of this is to say, none of this is to say that if you have experienced pain and loss in your life that you shouldn't feel that. The point of this is to say that in the pain and the loss that you've experienced in your life, Jesus is present with you and for you in his death and resurrection by the power of his spirit. The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, Romans 8, 11, now dwells in you. And until Jesus comes back, he reminds us again and again that he's with us and he's for us. And when he comes back, What's he going to do? He's going to wipe every tear from our eye. There'll be no more crying, no more pain. Why? Because God will be in our midst, in the person of Jesus by the power of his Spirit. Ultimately, what Jesus does is reverse the meal that Job is eating. Job's eating a meal of death right now in this book. He's in dust and ashes. His wife is trying to feed him a meal of death. His friends have no other meal to offer him. He's just eating dust and ashes. He's eating death itself. But when Jesus comes, when he prepares a table for us, it's a table of life. Instead of dust and ashes, he gives us his presence in the bread and the cup. Amen. 